So I, uh, I, I primarily get to work um, with our middle and high school students and their families, and there's lots of reasons to appreciate this time of year, but one reason it's special to me is because there's always you know, students that are back home from college or who are visiting families who have moved away years ago, um, and I know we have a room full of people who are here that aren't always here with us during the year, and so we're glad you're here, glad to see you, um, and just thrilled to be with you this morning. Now, I know we just celebrated Christmas, but this morning for a moment, I'd like to, to take us back in time to a previous Christmas 27 years ago. It's 1996, all right? I'm 10 years old. No one in the youth group is going to be alive for another nine years. The Spice Girls have released their very first album. Uh, two incredible stars have teamed up to make one of the best movies of all time, and that is, of course, Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny and Space Jam. And there's this, oh, everybody's wearing baggy jeans and flannels also. That's the other thing that's going on. And there's this one toy that everyone wants. Everyone wants to get their hands on. It's Tickle Me Elmo. Tickle Me Elmo. Now, I was too old to want a Tickle Me Elmo, but I knew at the time how big a deal it was. I heard about it. And if, if you're not familiar, Tickle Me Elmo, he's a stuffed Elmo doll, and when you squeeze it, he laughs, right? He gets tickled. And they're still around today. It's a pretty cool toy. But in 1996, it was a whole different story. I mean, it was such a big deal. People were going crazy trying to get this stuffed Elmo for their children. There was more demand than there was supply. Bites were breaking out in Walmart. By the end of the Christmas season, people were selling them for up to $1,500. That's how badly people wanted Tickle Me Elmo. And of course, Tickle Me Elmo is just one of many different toys that have caused this mad rush to buy them up for Christmas, right? In 2020, there was the PlayStation 5, uh, Hatchimals sold out in 2016, 2002 had Beyblades, and the list is almost endless, you know, from Pokemon cards and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to Tamagotchis and Pogs. Does anybody remember Pogs? I had a Pog collection. I see like two very shy hands going up. Yes, okay, a couple people got me. Um, there were Pound Puppies and Transformers, Teddy Ruxpin. You can go all the way back to 1920 with the only slightly creepy Raggedy Andy doll, right? And you may be wondering, as we talk about all the, the most popular toys from each year, what about this year, right? And I had the same question. What about 2023? So I went online to see what toys sold best this year. Do you mind what I guess? What's number one? What do you got, Cohen? Legos. Legos. You know, there are a bunch of Legos in the top list. They're like three and four, so that's very good. But this year is the year of Barbie. All right, Barbie. I guess we should have seen it coming. She got her first live-action movie this year. We're, we're 64 years since Barbie debuted, and she's back on top. And, and here's the interesting thing, though, okay? As I was looking at this list of top-selling 2023 Christmas toys, something caught my eye. All the way down the list, spot number 20 was a toy I hadn't heard of in a very long time, and that toy is called Furby. And the reason I was shocked is because I remember Furby from 25 years ago. All right, let me take you back. It's 1998. I'm 12 years old now. Still no one born from the youth group yet. I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith has been playing on the radio on loop for 16 weeks straight. The second Harry Potter book is out. Now everybody's wearing cargo pants. I mean, all those pockets, they're so useful. And there's this one toy that everyone wants, and that toy is the Furby. All right? There it is in all its 
majesty, I guess. Uh, and, and just like Tickle Me Elmo, people are going crazy over Furby. They're doing whatever they can to get one for their kids for Christmas. Now, you may or may not be familiar with Furby. He's this little furry animatronic creature, and it can interact with you, all right? Most importantly, Furbies can speak. Their little beak opens up and they talk. However, Furbies only speak furbish, as you would expect. For example, uh, do means what in furbish. Do da means yes. Um, we talk a lulu means tell me a joke. Right, there's a whole language for furbish. But what made Furby special was that as you spent time with it, and as you interacted with it, as you talked to your Furby, it would learn English, and it would start to speak to you in words you could understand. Now, the truth is, Furby didn't really listen to what you said, right? It was already pre-programmed knowing English. As it heard noise around it, it would slowly start using more of its programmed English vocabulary. But we didn't know that at the time, right? Everyone thought it was listening, recording, and learning based on what we said. In fact, and this is wild, at one point, Furbies were banned from the National Security Agency, the NSA of the United States, because there were concerns that a Furby would hear and then repeat classified information. Okay, that's true. They were banned from the NSA. And as kids, I don't know, there was just something so cool and compelling about this idea that I got to influence what this Furby becomes. It's going to learn from me. It's going to pick up all these things from me. The Furby, it represented potential, and you could have an impact on its future. And as I've thought about this, I'm I'm not actually that surprised that Furbies are still around today because that idea is so universal. We all understand the power and impact a person can have on someone else's life. How one person in the right place and moment can totally change the course of someone's future. I want to think about that idea this morning. I want us to look at a few stories where that is exactly what happens. And the first is the story of a guy named Maximilien Robespierre. Now, he's from France. There's a lot of French words in this story. I don't speak French, so I'm going to get it wrong. I'm sorry, okay? But he was born in France in 1758, all right? Maximilien Robespierre, let's call him Max. He was a smart kid. He excelled in school. He was interested in history and politics, and he had big dreams, like really big dreams. He wanted to end slavery in France. He wanted more equality for women, more democratic systems. He had some good ideas. And he got to go to this fancy elite school on scholarship. It's called the Lycée Louis-le-Grand. And around the same time uh, that he went to school, the new king, King Louis XVI, was coronated. And as part of, of King Louis' I'm the new king tour, he came to this school for a visit. He's touring around France. He comes to Max's school. And it was decided a student would welcome the king with a speech. We get to interact with the king. And out of 500 potential candidates, Maximilien Robespierre was chosen. Now, what an opportunity, right? I mean, a moment like this could change the course of your life. It could define who you become. And so he carefully prepared his speech to welcome the king. On the day of the king's visit, he showed up, dressed nicely, speech memorized, ready for his big moment. But it was raining. And so the king never got out of his carriage. And Max and King Louis, they never met face to face. 
Well, the king soon had other problems to deal with anyway. If you're familiar with history, you know what was about to happen, and that is the French Revolution. That's right. A few years later, France was rebelling against the monarchy. Eventually, King Louis and his entire family, they're captured, they're thrown in prison, and they have to sit around. He's placed on trial while these revolutionists, these rebels and criminals, they decide what to do with him. You know, is he going to have to give up his title? Is he going to have to pay a hefty ransom? Will he be exiled out of France? Will he live out his life in prison? And then a voice speaks up. He said, with regret, I pronounce this fatal truth. Louis must die so so that the nation may live. And you know whose voice it was, right? It was Max. It was Max. He was one of the leaders the revolution, and they executed the king, and it sparked a series of bloody public executions urged on and championed by Maximilian. It was called La Terreur, the reign of terror, and he would go on to execute anybody who opposed or questioned the revolution. Over 17,000 public executions were carried out on the streets. It didn't stop until the revolution saw how power-hungry and violent and paranoid Maximilian had become. And then they arrested him and executed him the same way. And it's such a a tragic story about a young man who had so much possibility, so much potential, and ended up causing so much pain and suffering in the world. And you can't help but think about, ah, how things could have been different. You know, what if you could change one moment and change the course of a person's life? You can't help but imagine, what if the king had gotten out of the carriage? What if he and Max had met face-to-face back when Max was still a young guy full of optimism and hope? Max maybe could have given his speech. Maybe the king would have heard his, his impassioned cries for equality and fairer treatment. Maybe Max and the king would have sat and talked. Maybe they would have gotten to know each other. Maybe Max would have seen the king as a person instead of an idea. If the king had gotten out of his carriage, maybe years later... When a room of revolutionists were deciding to do what to do with the king, Max would have spoken up. But instead of crying for execution, he might have advised caution and mercy. And maybe the French Revolution wouldn't be remembered with so much death and shame and regret. I mean, there's no way to know, right, if things would have been different. But it's it's hard not to imagine that if only the king had stepped into the rain, gotten involved with his people. Things could have turned out better if the king had gotten out of his carriage. The other stories I want to share with you this morning are are kind of about the same thing. They're pivotal moments in history where a king will decide whether or not to get involved because one moment, one choice, it can make an enormous difference and sometimes the course of history hinges on whether or not the king gets out of the carriage. So the second story is from the book of Exodus. And we're going to pick up the story at the very end of chapter 2. And up to this point, the book of Exodus has done two important things. It's introduced us to the main characters of the book, and it's kind of laid out their situation. So we've been introduced first to the Israelites. They lived in the land of Egypt for some time, growing more and more prosperous. Long ago, of course, God had made a covenant, a sacred deal with their ancestors, that he would take care of them, that they'd be his people, and that through them, One day, all of humanity would be blessed. But lately, things haven't gone so well, right? And this is where we're introduced to our next major character, Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh is king over Egypt. He sees the prosperity of the Israelites, and he feels threatened. And so he enslaves them. He works them hard. And when they continue to prosper, he has all their male babies killed. Pharaoh is evil. He's wicked. He's ruthless and violent. And when Pharaoh passes away, his son rises up to take his throne, and he rules the same way his father did. As far as Pharaoh knows and believes, he is God. And he has the power and control to prove it. But in the midst of this evil and tragedy, our final main character appears, Moses. He's born into the midst of a genocide. He's marked for death. He should not survive. But through the cunning of his mother, he escapes murder. And floating among the reeds of the river in a basket, he's watched over by his sister. In a moment of pity, he's taken in by Pharaoh's own daughter. Moses is raised as a prince. As you read the story, you realize this is him. He's the hero. But it's not meant to be because he, he kills another man in secret. And he's found out he has to flee for his own life. Moses, he, whatever was supposed to happen, he fails, right? Whatever could have been is lost. In a way, each of these three main characters of Exodus, the Israelites, Pharaoh, and Moses, they kind of lost their way. They lost sight of who they are. We read later that the Israelites have lost hope. They've given up. Faced with the opportunity to be freed from slavery, they aren't even sure that's what they want. Pharaoh, meanwhile, he's this man who thinks he is God. He rules with absolute control, and no one can challenge him as far as he knows. And then Moses, he's a prince. He's supposed to be a hero, but when we catch up with him, he's, he's a shepherd hiding in obscurity. He failed. And it's hard to imagine there's anything left for him. Now, we know the story the story's going to take a turn, right? It doesn't end here. But for a moment, I want us to pause and realize it could have, right? This could be it. Pharaoh could have been one more in the line of kings worshipped as gods while ruthlessly destroying and persecuting anyone who opposed him. The Israelites could have been slowly crushed under the weight of generations of slavery until they no longer could even recall the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses, yeah, he could have grown old and died anonymously in the wilderness, just another wandering shepherd. In fact, that's how the story should end. That's how the story would end. Unless the king gets out of the carriage. I want to read uh, Exodus 2, starting in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And there it is. One night in the desert, a bush catches on fire, and it doesn't burn up. This is it. This is the king getting out of his carriage. God is stepping into his creation, into the lives of Moses, Pharaoh, and the Israelites. He is not content to sit dry and comfortable in the carriage while his people suffer. So he steps into history. He acts. The burning bush is God wading into their lives to rescue them. And because, because he chooses to get involved, the story is going to turn completely. You know, Moses thought this was a story that had been over for a long time. But it turns out he's standing at one of those pivotal moments, a moment ripe with potential, a moment that will change everything. You know, after God rescues the Israelites from Egypt, he gives them land to establish themselves. And there are times when they're faithful and times when they aren't. There's times when they're strong and times when they're weak. They have good and bad times. But no matter where the Israelites find themselves, from here on out, they will always remember back to this moment when God gets involved and takes action. Look, look at this passage from Psalm 77. Psalm 77, 13 through 20. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is as great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people. And listen, what's coming is all imagery taken from the Exodus, from the parting of the Red Sea. The children of Jacob and Joseph, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. For the Israelite people, the Exodus is a forever reminder that God cares, that he really cares about them, and that he is at work. He's not absent or forgetful. He doesn't have better things to do. God is dialed in. He hears, he sees, he cares, and he acts. And when the Israelites wonder or forget or they hurt, then they remember back to this moment of God stepping in and taking action. Now, God's involvement doesn't always go the way we would expect, right? In fact, my um, hope this year as I have opportunities to preach is to take some time to look at each of these three major characters here at the beginning of the book of Exodus and see how God, stepping into their story, helps them see who they really are, how they understand themselves in light of God's truth. And sometimes that's a hard thing to do. But this morning, I want us to key in on one little phrase here at the end of Exodus chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read verse 24. And 25, again, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And here, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
God saw and God knew. Man, what a beautiful truth that God sees and he knows. Just like he saw the Israelites in pain and he knew and understood their suffering, God sees you and he knows. You know, whatever's going on right now, if it's stress as a busy season of life approaches, if it's pressure or desire to impress someone else, maybe you're in a season of life as you're caring for someone else and you can't remember what it's like to care for yourself. You may be experiencing loss, the darkness and isolation of depression, a longing for love or deep concern for someone you care deeply about. Whatever it is, God sees you. He knows you're not alone. You know, we, we share something with the Israelites in the same way that they would always look back, look back to the story of the Exodus as this reminder that God is not absent, but instead the king is getting out of the carriage, stepping into their lives to rescue them. In the same way, we have a story that we look back to as well. We just celebrated it, that when we were utterly lost, when we were lost in slavery to our own sin and desire, destined for death, the king got out of his carriage. He didn't arrive how people might expect, but as a baby in Bethlehem, and he stepped into the rain and the muck, he experienced pain and loss and temptation for us, just for us. In the moments you're not sure, or when you wonder if anyone sees what's going on or if anyone knows what's happening in your life, remember Jesus stepping into our story. Find peace in knowing that he is still at work. And let's... Let's share. Let's share the moments where God is acting in our lives with one another. I hope, you know, that when we get together, we catch up with one another, we sing, we read the Bible. I hope we also spend some time celebrating God's activity in our world. Let's tell our stories. Let's share our testimonies and remind one another God's working. He sees us. And he knows us. You know, tomorrow begins a new year. It's, it's technically, you know, January 1st. It's just a Monday, a day like any other. But we give it this significance, right? It's the beginning of a new year. But something about that feels packed full of potential. It's a moment when big decisions can be made, when you can decide how you want things to be different. Whatever is on your mind as you go into the new year, I hope that as you think about the story of Exodus, you're reminded that, man, you do not walk into this new year alone. Our God is alive, he is active, and he is working in the world He is with you. In France, 1774, there was a king who didn't get out of the carriage. Years later, his own people, they imprisoned him, they put him on trial, and they executed him in public. And his death was the beginning of a crusade of violence and revenge. But he wasn't the first king to be imprisoned by his own people. Because 1,700 years before that, a king did. A king did get out of his carriage. He knew what his people were going to do to him, but he got out anyway. They imprisoned him. They put him on trial. They beat him. They executed him in public. But he went through all of it for us. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, and he's defeated sin and death. Now, that is a king worth following. That's a king who deserves your allegiance and your entire life. And we make that declaration of allegiance, of giving over our lives through baptism into Jesus. We're about to stand together and worship that king. And today, if there's any way we can be helpful, you can let us know while we're singing, or you can stick around.
talk with us afterwards. There will be people hanging out here until the lights go out. We would love to hear your story and see how our king is stepping into it. Let's stand together and worship him.